Welcome to the Healthcare Huddle. Today we have a very informative guest, Toby Clary, who is a CPA as well as a CVA, a Certified Valuation Analyst that specializes in managing, running, and providing value on healthcare practices. He talks a lot about the do's and don'ts of running a practice, the struggles and opportunities that exist from his perspective. And also, he has some really interesting thoughts on how to proceed forward with your loan forgiveness if you were lucky enough to get a PPP. So listen in and take some notes because Toby's got a lot of great content for us today. It's time for the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. Presented by Encompass Medical, devoted to helping organizations succeed with customized medical practice management services. Visit EncompassMedical.com today. Now, here's your host, Michael Zerbis. I'm happy today to have our guest, Toby Clary, who's a CPA that specializes in running healthcare practices, joining the show today. Toby has an interesting journey to becoming a CPA at his firm, Sukup and Bush, and he's got an extensive experience set that I imagine informs his ideas and his views on managing and running healthcare practices. And given the existential <laughs> issues that we have in healthcare with the pandemic and all the regulations and attempts to manage this situation we find ourselves in. I was excited that he agreed to come on today. Before we start, though, I'd like to give you, the dear listener, a quick overview of Toby's bona fides. He's quite accomplished and quite enmeshed in this world of business and management and CPAs and valuations. And he's a member of both the American Institute of CPAs and the National Association of Certified Analysts. He's president of the Northern Chapter of the Colorado Society of CPAs. He's also a member of the Intuit ProConnect Tax Customer Council. So he comes to us with a lot of experience, knowledge, and views that he garners from around the country. Toby, thank you for making the time today. You're very welcome. I really appreciate it. I've had the good fortune to know Toby for multiple years now and been able to work with him on different projects, and I find him to be insightful. But before we get to that, Toby, you've mentioned to me before that your journey to becoming a CPA and into healthcare was not necessarily a direct path. And I was hoping you might start us off by sharing that journey a little bit. Sure. You know, with CPAs, I found there's one of two ways you become a CPA. You either are born into a family where your father, your mother, you know, an aunt, uncle, grandparent was a CPA, and you've decided that that's the path you want to take. Or similar to mine, it just kind of hits you upside the head one day and you realize, hey, this is something that I should follow. For me, I went to school with the idea of getting a business management degree in order to then go to culinary school after that. And so... Wait a second. Hang on a second, Toby. Culinary school. Culinary school. Yeah. So about the most creative and furthest thing from accounting that you could imagine. Holy cow. But yeah, so I, I decided that that's the path I wanted to go on at an early age. And kind of, I had my whole life planned out for me from about age 13 on. That sounds like a CPA. Yeah, that, that is true. So maybe there were some underlying aspects of my personality I should have paid attention to. But ultimately, you know, I got into college. I decided that, you know, working nights, working weekends, working holidays wasn't exactly, 
you know, the right thing if I wanted to raise a family and, you know, have some sort of life outside of my profession. And so I kind of pivoted at that point in time to looking at different other careers and that I was right in the midst of my first accounting class, which I actually really enjoyed, which, you know, I was, it was an intro to accounting class. A lot of students around me hated it. And I was kind of looking around going, Hey guys, this isn't that hard. And it's actually pretty fun. And so that's kind of when the light went off, you know, for me that maybe this is something I should pursue, which, you know, to this day, I think is one of the most fortunate things that's happened to me is that I went down that path because it's allowed me to have the career that I've had so far and the career that I'll have into the future. And so that was my intro into accounting. Mm -hmm. Healthcare was almost a similar fortunate event where I started picking up some smaller healthcare practices. Most of them actually started with dental practices and just really found that I enjoyed the nuances of healthcare and really got along well with physician owners and, you know, started working with some larger groups and, you know, the nuances of those large groups versus a small practice. And so really just kind of dumb luck, like most of the things in my life, you know, kind of led me down the path to specializing in healthcare. And again, I mean, just very fortunate that I get to work in that industry and advise that industry. And I mean, I have just lots of great clients and great friendships with people in the healthcare industry. And so it's, you know, it's one that's not going away anytime soon. So it adds some job stability too. You know, there's the accountant side of the job stability, but it's interesting to me. I, I would push back a little bit on your characterization that it's dumb luck in doing these podcasts and in talking with different people. I find that there's a pattern of being open to gathering information from a myriad of sources and being willing to chase that and follow that. And so that feels like the antithesis of dumb luck, but it may be instructive for all of us as we go forward to keep that mindset, right? And to keep our eyes open for those opportunities that may exist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, I, I definitely simplified it down a little bit with the dumb luck comment. But for me, when I look at my career trajectory and how I've ended up to be where I am now, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of hard work in there. And like you said, just being open and aware to what's going on around you and when doors open, you know, to know whether or not to, you know, go through them or go a different direction for sure. So, you know, you said something earlier about, you know, you love the nuances and I'm, I'm assuming some of the problem solving that comes along with managing healthcare businesses and delivering services to providers. But I'm curious to know what part of it do you find onerous? Don't you like? I'm wondering if there's some commonality from your perspective with some of our other guests and listeners who are in, enmeshed in this world and struggle with different aspects. Yeah, I th for me, I think the hardest part with healthcare is some of the regulatory compliance that yeah. um, you know practices face all the time. Now, being in accounting, I am used to regulatory compliance, obviously, with tax codes and accounting principles and those. But now, all of a sudden, we're then adding healthcare regulatory compliance. It's a lot different than other industries, and so you know, dealing with the change of regulatory compliance, you know, that's always been a challenge for accounting and also healthcare. And so when you merge the two of them together, it becomes especially difficult. But if you look at it positively of, hey, here's a challenge, how can we understand it and then give great advice and 
help advise our clients. I mean, that that's ultimately the most satisfying part of it as well. So while it's challenging and onerous, it's also provides the most opportunity to create value. And that's probably true of most things in our life, right? Um, yep. The ones that are hardest when we were able to surmount them, they're the, they're the most rewarding. But in that regulatory burden, is especially heavy on smaller practices, right? I'm not saying the burden isn't egregious for systems, but there's a level where the regulatory reporting requirements are the same, right? Up to a certain point and smaller businesses have less resources, expertise. And so is that one of the areas that you find is a blind spot for your clients, or are there other areas that they have blind spots or they struggle with in managing their business? Because a lot of the small to medium-sized practices have the physicians themselves trying to wear two or three hats. Yeah, absolutely. I think as far as it being a blind spot, it absolutely is a blind spot. When I look at medical practices, a lot of these physicians that are owning these practices, and obviously we're not talking about large healthcare systems, but for these independent medical practices out there, they've been highly trained and specialized to practice medicine, not necessarily to deal with the regulatory compliance, to deal with cost monitoring, to running a business, to running, you know, to managing HR. And a big part for us is the internal controls. You know, I'm speaking from the accountant side here. Sure. But internal controls for medical practices, those are a big issue. And so internal controls are processes you have in place to help safeguard the financial assets of the practice. So prevent employee theft, right. you know, to make sure that things are operating efficiently. And so for me, that's a big blind spot too. Not only just understanding the regulations out there, but also understanding your own practice and what the numbers mean and how to safeguard it. Because I mean, physicians are good at practicing medicine. That does not mean that they're innately able to run a business, not to say that they're not able to run a business. We have lots of great physician owners that are incredible business owners. However, that's not what they're trained to be. And so for me, regulatory management and internal controls are huge blind spots for businesses, for practices as they grow. And you mentioned that there's also other areas of the business that they may not have training, exposure, or experience in running. And I'm curious to where you see those. You mentioned HR, but are there others? Are there other areas that they, independent of HR or the internal financial controls that are so important? Where else do you see them needing help or there isn't a cross-translational ability to the physician skills to this particular skill set required to run a a decent-sized business? Yeah, I think... Number one, people skills are always very important, no matter what the industry, but especially in healthcare and with physicians being able to you know, communicate well, their thoughts with their staff, I think is a area that not to just pick on healthcare and not to pick on physicians, because I always think every business always needs to really dedicate time and resources to communication because commun- you know, running Agreed. a business is a relationship. It's a relationship with your patients. It's a relationship with your staff. And every relationship is built on strong communication. So that's an area that I see that there's a little bit of a weakness sometimes is effectively communicating between your team to make sure that the goals are met. HR, all of those, that's a huge one. We've already talked about regulatory compliance, accounting, 
billing. I mean, understanding coding, you know, not yes. that you need a physician yes. to fully understand proper coding. However, at least understand enough to know what the issues are, to know where there are risks in down the road, to know where you could have issues from a cash flow standpoint if things are coded incorrectly. And just having an, a general understanding, I think, of a lot of things. They don't have to specialize in any one of these, but really kind of just to be well-rounded and robust at a number of different things other than just practicing medicine. You know, it's interesting, Toby, because... One of the fundamental challenges that healthcare providers have is one, we don't give them that general overview and information about the basic skills. And we also don't teach them the difference between, for instance, to talk about your communication, which I think you're spot on, is there's a difference between bedside manner and communicating with a patient and different levels and types of communication for staff, depending on their role and function. And the other key stakeholder besides your staff and your patients are your partners. There's a level of communication that's different and sophisticated. And all three of those groups have different communication needs and communication styles. I was wondering if you see that the same way that I just pontificated. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, more medical practices have failed because of, you know, poor communication between partners. To me, when you brought up the partner aspect, I felt a little remiss because that's a huge issue with medical practices. And I mean, it's, you know, let's call a spade a spade. I mean, you know, in order to get through medical school and, and run a successful practice, sometimes physicians have large egos. And ultimately, you know, and that's not a bad thing. I don't, don't make me No, I agree. I, you need I, it. <laughs> I do not want that to come across as negative, but sometimes when you have that, it does make communication difficult with other people who are your peers that you may have differing viewpoints on things. And, you know, ultimately it's about bridging those gaps and finding the middle ground and, you know, finding the things you can agree on rather than focusing on the things that you disagree on. And, and so I, I think communication between partners is absolutely paramount because the tone of the practice comes from the owners down. And so when you have great communication between the owners, then that should filter down into communication with the staff, communication with the patients. And, and you're right, bedside communication with patients a lot of physicians are really good at that. And so yeah. you know, taking those and applying those other places as well, I think is really important to the success of practices. You know, it's interesting too, that you're making a great point about that. And we say having a big ego in the world, that's considered a bad thing, but you kind of need to have a big ego to be willing to cut open someone's body and do a hip replacement. There's a little bit of chutzpah that you need to do that. And I don't want my physician to be wringing their hands and, and worry that they're going to make a mistake. But sometimes, as you know, that's maladaptive in the business world, right? And so there's this ability to navigate that middle path, as you described. I think you're spot on. And it leads me to a question for you. Given the current environment, we're talking about challenges that practices have and that providers have and owners have. But if we pull the camera back out, what changes do you see happening and challenges are happening as a result of this pandemic? And how are you seeing that maybe globally or nationally, maybe globally is too big, but nationally, but also maybe drilling it down to how does that affect your clients? What do you see is happening out there? Yeah, I mean, the pandemic was really interesting when end of February, beginning of March, as this all started 
coming really to the forefront of, you know, not only healthcare, but I mean, the entire nation and world practices were exposed with, you know, some of their weaknesses that they've gotten away from for a long time. I mean, we've always had historical challenges of consolidation of hospital groups, you know, downward pressure on reimbursement rates, upward pressure on costs, you know, shrinking margins of businesses. Well, you know, the one thing that's been steady is that, hey, we're always going to be able to practice medicine. You know, I know when the Affordable Care Act first came out, you know, and was being proposed, a lot of people thought this is the end of medicine as we now know it. Well, I mean, obviously it did change medicine, but there are still practices. People are still practicing medicine. It wasn't necessarily as negatively impactful as people initially thought it may be. Well, you know, now here we have this pandemic and the one thing that we always knew that we had, which is we're going to be able to practice medicine, that got taken away almost overnight for many, many practices, depending on where they're located and the regulations in those states, you know, counties. And their specialties, cities. right? Yeah. And the individual specialties. And were they deemed essential or were they elective? And so all of a sudden, the one constant of we're going to have patients and we're going to have reimbursements and we're going to have cash flow, the rug got pulled out from them. And so I think what it did was expose that you know certain businesses didn't have enough reserves on hand in order to bridge the gap. Now, there was a lot of government interference in that to help bridge that. So that was a big issue of, oh my gosh, how am I going to make payroll? Because you know, I'm used <laughs> right. to a physician being a physician group and we drain all the profits out on a monthly basis for bonus calculations. And you know we just know that the coffers are going to get refilled. Well, that didn't happen come April and May. And so not having enough cash reserves on hand, not having enough PPE on hand to deal with the situation like that was presented to us, a lot of practices now are reevaluating, okay, let's have a plan for shutdowns. What does it look like if we need to send some of our staff and have them be a remote workforce? You know, what IT infrastructure do we need? What IT controls do we need to make sure that everything is HIPAA compliant? I look at it from a, I kind of use the TSA, which is not anything anyone wants to be, you know, referred to, but, you know, after 9-11, when that happened, there were massive changes that happened with the TSA and how we go about air travel. Now, I think the same thing is going to happen in the practice of medicine where the nuts and bolts are going to stay the same. I mean, surgeons are still going to perform surgeries, you know radiologists are still going to be reading chart. That part's not going to change. But I think what is going to change is, you know, some of the security and safeguard measures to make sure that if something large scale negative happens again, we're not all caught on our back foot going, wait a minute, now what? Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions provides full suite IT managed services and security solutions in order for companies to operate successfully in the current highly connected environment. Has your company chosen to increase remote working capacity? Has your company been looking to transition more of its IT infrastructure to the cloud? The Encompass team has helped numerous client partners adapt their business infrastructure to be more remote friendly while improving their security posture. Our team of information technology professionals will test your team with friendly phishing attempts and help you train your team to follow more secure behaviors to protect your business and reputation. With industry-leading service level response times, Encompass's IT team will help keep your enterprise operating smoothly and 
in a position to minimize the inevitable attack. For more information, go to EncompassHDS.com, select Information Technology, and click the Learn More button to schedule the discovery call. Do you see any other changes in the healthcare that are going to kind of be permanent? I take your point. Surgeons are going to do surgery and radiologists will do interpretations. But besides safeguards, do you see any other sea changes that are happening? One of the ones that always is a concern to me. And for me, looking at it, there may be a number of business owners out there who say, hey, I don't want to do this again. And uh, yeah. you know, the hospital has been knocking on my door. I've been holding yep. off because I like running an independent practice. But you know what? This has taught me that if something like this happens again, I don't want to deal with it again. And so I'm just going to let the hospital system deal with it. And so I'm not sure if it's if something like this is going to scare enough people to push them into joining a hospital group rather than running an independent practice, but it might. I mean, I think ultimately I'm hoping that the practices will continue to operate like they have continued, just with more of a cautionary policy in place rather than just, you know, making bold assumptions that may not come true. And so for me, I look at it as I can't predict the future, but I'm hopeful that, you know, people don't just say, hey, I don't want to run a business anymore. As a small business owner myself, I believe in the strength of independent practices and small businesses. Yeah. And, And so for me, I would hate to see this cause people to run to the safety of a large hospital group, but it might. I'm not sure. I agree with you on that. And I think that there could be some really negative consequences if we see a significant fleeing from those independent practices. I think the independent practices serve a critical and important function within the healthcare ecosystem. I think they're a governor to some degree on pricing increases. I think they're that competition in the marketplace, I think drives better results. And, and I think the ability to have choice for the consumer just from a hey, I like this surgeon better than that surgeon, or I, I want to work at, at with this person and that person for whatever reasons is critically important. And, you know, you have, I'm sure, seen, and maybe you'll confirm this question I have to you, that there's been these contractions and, and expansions of hospital footprints gobbling up independent practices. And then my experience has been many times they don't manage them as well as the independent practices do. And then they end up spitting them back out into the marketplace at some point in the future. Have you seen that as a, as a function over your career? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when I, when I first started practicing, which was about 20 years ago, you know, that was when, you know, practices had decided they were kind of just coming out of the, Hey, I do not want to be part of a large, you know, hospital group. I want to run an independent practice. And so, you know, it, it seemed that was the tail end of, groups breaking off and starting anew. And then it seemed, you know, when, you know, I don't know how many years ago, you know, call it 10 years ago, maybe all of a sudden we started seeing practices start to get gobbled up again. And it's, and it is a cyclical nature. And it, as you know, from my understanding of the industry, it's, it's been like that for a little while, but it definitely, I'm not seeing as many more practices splitting off anymore that used to. And so it seems like now once they're in the system, I'm not sure if they're staying in the system or we're just still waiting to see, 
you know, that uh, cycle renew again. But I'm not right. saying many groups kind of decide, hey, we're going to do this on our own and break off from the hospital group. Yet, not to say it won't happen in the future. You brought up a lot of great points about, you know, some of the efficiencies of running the practice. And, you know, part of it goes back to sometimes, you know, these docs want to be in control of their own destiny. You know, there's, there's benefits of, you know, not running a business, but there are also a lot of benefits of running a business. And so I'm hoping that, you know, it's just a continual cycle and it's not once you're in the hospital system, you're always in the hospital system, but I'm not sure on that one anymore. You know, you, you raise a good point, Toby, and you're making me think, and I'm looking back and realizing that I've seen a lot of acquisition, but you're right. I haven't seen people being spit back out. My I've been in healthcare for now close to 30 years. And I do remember a time when they were acquired and then people grew tired of a lack of independence to practice and they came back out and split back off and formed groups. And so it's an interesting point to see over time, if in fact, this is the new norm that people are staying put because of all of the uncertainty, whether it's regulatory pandemics or this downward pressure and reimbursement, and it's just not worth it. You raise a great point. It kind of makes me wonder too, is I've always had this conundrum and I wanted to get your take on it of why we don't spend any time when they're when physicians are in medical school giving them any primers on business and maybe you have a thought about whether that's a good idea or it's it's crazy but we expect them to jump out and be generalists in all of these different areas that we've had them focus and we haven't given them any exposure until their feet are on the ground and they have to get running and make decisions and because they're docs and they're conscientious people they're going to try like heck um, so they're not going to shirk from the job, but we haven't given them very many tools to do it. Yeah. To me, you couldn't be more right. I mean, it's, and, and I understand that, you know, the way education is now, I mean, there's so much information that they have to take in to practice medicine. I mean, that first and foremost, that has to be their primary focus. Right. But but losing out on any sort of other general curriculum like business management classes, HR, I mean, even understanding how payroll works and accounting and to be able to look at a profit and loss or a balance sheet of a practice and just not even to be able to dissect it, but just to even know what you're looking at. And then, I mean, honestly, I think every person in, in medicine and in if you're going to have any sort of management role, you have to, you know, classes in psychology, I think are important too. <laughs> so I, I think that's smart. Lot, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot that's lacking in, in the edge, in the curriculum out there to make somebody not only a successful physician, but also a successful business owner, someone who can, you know, just even, even if they're internal of, you know, some other system to be able to look and understand, you know, profitability and ratios and what, what the reimbursements mean. And, you know, I mean, those sort of things, I think really just get lost in the, in the education system. And, and I think it's a disservice to students, you know, in med school and not to pivot away from just, you know, physicians, but even on the dental side of things where, yeah, you know, a lot of times, you know, dentists are coming out of school and between their student loan debt and then they start a practice, they buy real estate and they're $2 million in debt before they've even earned a single dollar, you know, and 
then and they're expected to hey that everything will be fine and they have no training on how to run a business and so you know it's not just you know med school it's i mean they're across the board i think it, there's a disservice and you know i love when i find a physician that has an understanding of financials because it, it's it's so much more of an in-depth conversation that we can have when we're looking at things and talking through things because ultimately I mean, it's just that allows me to do my job even better if they have a baseline knowledge of what I'm talking about. And so, you know, part of my job is education. I mean, I, you know, I teach for the Colorado Society of CPAs, but more than that, I'm an educator for my clients and trying to educate them on what to look for and what they need to be paying attention to. You know, it's interesting because that's the word that kept jumping into my mind is that, you know, you and your firm are really teaching and guiding and educating your clients along this journey and helping them navigate. And it it's interesting to me that we're doing that work. I do some of that work when I'm consulting or I'm trying to turn around a system. The first thing is to start to get a gauge of where the knowledge level is of the various key leadership. And your mention of organizational psychology and the ability to understand how to be a leader and an effective leader, it's a complicated path to navigate. And I'm, I'm guessing that's part of what you like about it is are those challenges. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, the dirty little secret of my job is that, you know, I don't like sitting here for 12 hours a day reviewing tax returns. I mean, that that's not where, you know, I, I get my enjoyment. You know, the enjoyment is doing exactly what you just said, which is, you know, I love the, you know, getting in there and working hand in hand with groups and advising them because I mean, yeah, that that's where you see results and, you know, accounting and, you know, the CPA world, so much of it is reactive to, okay, here's what you did last year. Here's how we're going to report it to the government. But that's not the fun part. The fun part is putting plans in place, you know, implementing change and seeing, you know, the success on the back end is really where the true enjoyment of what we do. I mean, that's where it comes from. Encompass Healthcare Data Solution focuses on collecting the maximum from your revenue cycle. The revenue cycle management team regularly performs top 10% of outsourced billing companies with a clean claims rate of 98.05%, a zero pay denial rate of 0.015%, and average days in AR of less than 24 days. Your practice could go back to focusing on providing quality healthcare to your patients without the nagging concern of leaving real dollars on the table. Encompass's revenue cycle management solution provides unparalleled visibility and control into your revenues by providing a comprehensive dashboard and reporting system. The same reporting and dashboard system that the Encompass team uses to manage itself. Like most other revenue cycle vendors, Encompass only gets paid on net collections. Unlike other companies, they have a highly developed and unique denials management system that helps to ensure that your practice gets every penny that you've earned. For more information, go to EncompassHDS.com, select Revenue Cycle Management, and click the Learn More button to schedule your discovery call today. I guess it leads to another, the big question that uh, a lot of our listeners would want to know about is, and I know you've been a, this region, you've been a leading voice on trying to distill and teach a lot of people in the community about what's going to happen with these PPP loans. Do you have a sense of a gestalt of 
where you think the thinking is and what's going to happen or a time frame, or is everything still as nebulous as it was two months ago? So the answer to everything you just said is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. Hang on a second, Toby. (laughs) Wait a second, man. So, yeah, I mean, so here's where we stand right now. Here And let me tell you where we stand, where the current thinking is, and what I think is going to end up ultimately happening. So Perfect. You know, ultimately, yeah, I mean, when the CARES Act came out, I mean, we all had to immediately drop what we were doing. I mean, not only us in the accounting world, but obviously everybody in healthcare of what does this mean? What does this look like? I mean, it was a robust piece of legislation that came out very quickly. Well, there were a lot of holes in it initially. I mean, when we read the initial, I mean, and there's still a lot of unknowns and a lot of holes that still haven't been dealt with, but we have a pretty good idea of where we stand right now. So uh, right now, almost every loan is still on the books. I'm not aware of a single loan that has been forgiven by the SBA yet. Banks are now just starting to take applications for forgiveness. But your listeners really should, you know, pump the brakes on asking for forgiveness quite yet. And and I'll tell you why. Hmm. When the loans first came out, they came out with an eight-week period that you had to use the funds, which that created a lot of confusion for people because, hey, we had two and a half months. We got to use two and a half months of payroll, but now we have to use them in an eight-week period. Our practices aren't open yet. How are we going to pay these people? Our practices aren't open when the practice opens up. You know, that's when we're going to need the money, but we're not going to have time to do it. And it created just a lot of headaches and a lot of kind of stressful hand-wringing moments. Well, they came out and said, wait a minute. No, we understand. We're going to change it to 24 weeks for you to use the funds. So ultimately now, practices have been given 24 weeks to use this money for payroll, for rent, for interest payments, for utilities, transportation, a number of things like that. And they only use two and a half months worth of their average payroll to qualify for it. So that means assuming that the practice basically didn't shut their doors or go down to less than 50% for this entire 24-week period, chances are they have enough expenses for that loan to be fully forgiven. So we went from thinking that these loans, that we were going to have trouble getting our clients to have their loans fully forgiven because they weren't going to have enough expenses to really that not being the issue at all because we went from a eight-week period to essentially a five-month period to use the fund. So so the thought is that they're going to be fully forgiven at this point in time. Now, the question is, when are they going to be forgiven? When the CARES Act came out, and not only when are they going to be forgiven, but what are the tax implications of that? Because when the CARES Act came out, written in the CARES Act, it said the forgiveness of the debt, once it becomes forgiven, is not taxable income, which was great to us in the accounting world because that meant, hey, you know, normally when you have debt forgiven, that becomes income to a practice. Well, the CARES Act, the way it was written, specifically forbid that to be considered taxable income. And so we thought, great, we're going to be able to deduct the expenses. When the money gets forgiven, it's not going to be taxable income. It's kind of the best of both worlds. However, the IRS, like the IRS generally does, came back and said, pause a minute. What's happening, what's going to happen is, yes, the forgiveness of debt is not taxable income. However, any expenses that you use the money on you can't deduct because it you cannot deduct expenses that are related to tax-free income. And I know I got a little deep in the tax code there, 
But ultimately what they said was, yeah, we're not going to make you treat the forgiveness as income, but we're not going to let you use the expenses as a deduction. And so that put us right back into the same place of, well, it's, it's going to be income. If we can't deduct the expenses, then essentially it becomes income. Now, both sides of the aisle came out when the IRS made that ruling a few months ago. Both sides of the aisle came out and said, that is not what we intended. Republicans and Democrats alike, which it's not much they agree on these days, but they both agreed that was not how they intended the law to work. The IRS came back and said, well, sorry, but that's how the tax law is written. If you want to change it, then you need to pass legislation to change it. So both sides of the aisle came back and said, fine, we'll do that. We'll deal with it in our next stimulus package. Well, you know, as the listeners, that, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, we know that that hasn't happened. So as of right now, we stand, you know, our understanding is that expenses used will not be allowed as a deduction on the practice of tax returns if they had those expenses forgiven through the PPP. That could be a, that's a big blow, right? I mean, it that's, is a big blow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's we thought we thought of this as a lifeline for businesses, which it right. was absolutely. And a lot of practices, you know, they really relied on on the PPP funds to keep their employees on the payroll, which is what the intent was. But now there's this kind of freight train coming down the road of, oh my gosh, we're going to have taxable income because of this. And then there's also, you know, that dovetails into HHS funds. With the CARES Act, the HHS funds that came out that were providing to groups that provided service that were billing for Medicare, there are requirements on that that the forgiveness of debt now impacts some of those HHS funds and the reporting and repayment of those. And so it's just a mess right now. <laughs> you know, our hope is that somehow, some way they still come together and say, no, this is not taxable income. The expenses are fully deductible. Really, this is just a tax-free gift from the government. But that's not where we currently stand. So we're telling our groups, hold off on submitting for forgiveness right now. They keep talking about simplifying the forgiveness application. And so we, you know, right now they, the SBA just came out and simplified for loans under 50,000, but a lot of medical practices have loans far exceeding 50,000. So ultimately, you know, we're telling them to hold off because the other thing is, is until that debt is legally forgiven, it stays as a liability on your books, which you think is a negative. But if you think about it, if you don't have it forgiven legally until 2021, then in theory, you're not going to pick up that phantom income until 2021. Now, the IRS may close that loophole at some point, but as it stands right now, it seems like that is a, a planning strategy right now of, hey, maybe let's not submit for forgiveness in 2020. Let's kick that tax can down the road to next year and submit for forgiveness in 2021, which you have the ability to do. And park it on the balance sheet as the liability. Correct. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know that in reading some of the stuff that you've been putting out, it's been it's a snafu, right? Situation normal, all filed up. I mean, it, you know, I'm reminded of my grandmother's admonition to me that no good deed goes unpunished. Right. And so the intent was to help us navigate through this on this black swan event. Right. right. And instead, as always, we take our best guess at what the real outcome is going to be, even when 
the CARES Act is passed. It's never done, right? I remember the same thing happened with the adoption of electronic medical records years ago, and that would became, uh, you know, they drove to do that. And there was two schools of thought. One was wait until the last possible moment to do it because you'll have more clarity. And the other was do it as fast as possible and get the get the money now and then use that money. And it feels like we're in that same spot where there's yeah. no clarity. So in, in all business hates uncertainty. It's, it's, it's frustrating at best. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, someone told me once on this whole applying for forgiveness is you do not want to be the first person that applies for forgiveness on this because they're <laughs> going to scrutinize the heck out of it. You know, kind of the equivalent of, you know, first one through the door gets shot you know, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I am of the, of the school of thought, the latter of what you said, which is, hey, let's hold off a little bit. I think it was latter of what you said. Let's hold off a little yeah. bit, see what happens. You know, let's get some more clarity. You know, worst case, we apply for forgiveness in December. I mean, it's I, I am not advising my clients to rush to have it forgiven unless they're trying to sell their practice. Because right now the SBA basically said if you're trying to sell if you're trying to sell a business, you have to escrow the sale proceeds for whatever that PPP is until it gets forgiven. So that's wow. the only time that I'm actually telling people, you know, if someone's in the midst of selling their practice right now, you want to try to get that forgiven as soon as possible so those funds don't get escrowed. That's a great point too. So Toby, I just looked at the uh, clock and I've kept you here longer than I promised, um, but you've been giving, giving us and our listeners such good information. Here's what I'd like to ask you and see if you'd be willing to come back again, maybe at some point, because there's other things I want to talk to you about. You mentioned one of them that we didn't get a chance to is talking about this consolidation and people are considering selling their business, some of the global and, and specific things they should be thinking about in addition to that nice little information you gave us about the, the loans themselves. So are you willing to come back at some time when this wasn't too painful for you, right? No, I, I always enjoy talking about this kind of stuff. And, you know, my family doesn't like hearing about it. So any chance I have the opportunity <laughs> to speak to somebody who's the willing uh, audience, I'm all for it. So anytime you want to have me back, I'd love to be back. Well, thanks, Toby. You've been, uh, as usual, our font of information. That's how I've come to know you. And I want to thank you for donating your time today. And I want to tell the listeners, if you want more information or want to learn more about Toby's firm or you want to reach out to Toby, there's two ways you can reach him. His firm is called Sukup and Bush, and that's spelled S-O-U-K-U-P-B-U-S-H, all one word, dot com. That's their website. Or you can call them at 970-223-2727. They got a great team. Toby has, as you all have heard, a wealth of knowledge and clarity around healthcare and running businesses. And so I strongly encourage you to reach out to them. And Toby, thanks again for taking the time with me today. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. All right, my friend. Bye-bye. My conversation with Toby Clary today was interesting as we started to see and understand his take on the business side of medicine. And it made me reflect on the idea that in medicine, there are many platitudes about physicians and their business abilities, many by physicians themselves. One being that if you want to separate physicians from their money, let them run their own business. 
Now, clearly, that is not true for all physicians all the time, but in my experience, it's right more often than it's wrong. I've had the good fortune to work with physicians that had a decent knack for the business side of medicine. I've also had the experience of working with providers who either were wildly ill-suited for business or assumed that being smart enough to be a physician would translate and provide the basic skills to run an organization. Yet many of those same providers struggle mightily and are unsuccessful in extracting all the value from their hard work and risk. And it got me to thinking about why. Physicians, by and large, are bright, hardworking, and dedicated. They score very high in conscientiousness on the big five personality traits. And conscientiousness translates to diligence, hard work, and the ability to delay immediate gratification. They will put the time in and work to reach a goal. By the very nature of their training, those traits are self-selected medical school and residency. If you do not have those traits, you are much less likely to make it through the grind. But that might be where the problem is. The very things that are selected for in medical training are the antithesis of what is needed in business. A few cases in point. Doctors are trained to make the best decisions they can with the information they have at the time they have it. In business, it's usually much better to stall or delay because extra time can be used to get better information and that results in superior decisions over the long term. Usually, snap decisions in business cost money. In medical training, to not know is the equivalent to being a failure. And sometimes that quote-unquote failure is intentionally made public in front of peers and superiors. Hardly an environment that encourages creativity, trial and error, or even thoughtfulness. In business, failure is baked in and expected. To be sure, planning, modeling, and risk mitigation tactics are all employed. But no entrepreneur or business leader expects to have every idea work. And some of the most successful entrepreneurs court failure because pushing the edge is the key to victory. Failing fast allows us to get to the next iteration and that correct answer sooner. And another idea is that due to increased regulation and reimbursement complications and expectations, we now force physicians to spend more time running their businesses. And for a physician that has been taught to always work harder, look at their shift lengths and residency. Their first response is to go back to old ways work harder and work longer. In business, when hours are piling up and staff overtime is mounting, good managers know to stop and reassess. That is where the efficiencies and aha moments happen. By not stopping and analyzing, by working harder, physicians miss the opportunity to make their organizations better. They should be focusing on working smarter, not harder. We train physicians for years and years but to not even give them one month primer on business basics like how to negotiate a contract, how to read a P&L or balance sheet, what to look for in a business plan, the basics in interviewing employees, how to develop macro reporting systems, or even the basics in business leadership. Yet we expect them to go forth and just know these things upon graduation. It's no wonder to me that providers are more dissatisfied than ever and burnout is more pervasive. We have increased the expectations and given them little in the ways of tools or education to meet them. It's a recipe for failure.
You've been listening to the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. For more information, show notes, guest profiles, and more, visit EncompassMedical.com and subscribe to the podcast at Apple iTunes, Overcast, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.